you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Aaron Barbado, director of the Immigrant Justice Clinic at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And we're talking to her about immigration, politics, and policy. We will also ask Professor Barbado about the recent grant she received to co-direct a Center for Dreamers at the University of Wisconsin that aims to help the roughly 11,000 undocumented immigrants in Wisconsin who were brought to this country as young children and remain here under the temporary, renewable protections of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which you may know as DACA. Professor Barbado, who just returned from a recent trip to the border, teaches second- and third-year law students to represent individuals in removal proceedings and with humanitarian-based immigration relief. Now, there's so much to cover, so I think we can just hop into it. And, you know, there's so much to talk about regarding immigration politics, but let's begin with a little bit about your background and your academic and professional narrative. Honestly, we'd like to know it all. How did you get into immigration? No, thanks for the question. Yeah, my interest in immigration law and policy really did start when I was in undergrad at University of Wisconsin. I was studying rehabilitation psychology and special education and was planning to be a teacher. During my my senior year, though, I was given the opportunity to do a practicum, a field placement, and I decided to do it at the public defender's office here in Madison. And what I did was go to the Dane County Jail every morning to do intakes with people that were, to see if they would be eligible for public defender services. And so it would mostly be like a financial intake and then review of what criminal charges they had. And I would do that uh, Monday through Friday morning from like eight to 11. And it sounds like kind of a strange way to spend your senior year of college, but I really kind of found my place there and feeling that a lot of my skills were of good service, including my ability to speak Spanish, because what I found was there were a lot of people that spoke Spanish in that were detained in the Dane County Jail, and they didn't have anybody to speak to. Um, and they ended up just having this 21-year-old Wisconsin girl who was maybe their only lifeline. And I also started to learn that a lot of people there ended up being undocumented. And that's when I started to learn a lot more about the need for services for people that are undocumented, especially in the criminal justice system because of them being over-policed and also not being able to communicate in English. And so when I was there, I just very much decided that I wanted to go to law school to pursue um, a career in immigration law so that I could serve an underserved population. And the University of Wisconsin really gave me the opportunity to learn and to serve in that way in undergrad and then continue to do so after my undergrad career. So your pathway from undergrad to your work in Ecuador and then going to law school, what made you decide law school was the way to address these important issues? Well, I think when you look at, um, when I learned about the criminal justice system a little bit in undergrad, then you I started to learn that there was this whole other area of law called immigration law that really guarded our borders and the way people could 
enter or exit and move freely throughout our world. And so um, I had a desire to live abroad and to do some years of service before pursuing higher education. And so I found a program in Quito, Ecuador that worked with families that were living at or below the poverty line, as well as worked with families um, that were seeking refuge in other countries. So mostly at the time there were families that were fleeing uh, political and persecution from the FARC or the ELN in Colombia. And they um, would often end up coming to Quito and Quito, Ecuador and not have much more than kind of the clothing on their back. And we were able to provide education services and as well as we would even help people build houses and these things called mingas. It was just a really, really clear look at how the world worked in a way and didn't work and how many countries, including the United States, are prepared to provide refuge to certain individuals who are fleeing violence in their countries, but no one is necessarily set up how to do it. And so when I was in keto, I really worked kind of on the ground in very like basic ways of how do we make sure that these families have enough food? How do we make sure these families have clothing? How do they have a safe place to live? Um, and that just really instilled in me a desire to use the privileges that I had and especially pursuing a, a education and law that would allow me to serve families in the country where I was born and hopefully provide more humanitarian relief to people that truly needed it. And I think growing up in Wisconsin, I wasn't necessarily exposed so much to all of the, uh, the people that may need service or may need refuge around the world. And so it was a great way for me to really get in and learn about it and then decide to pursue a degree in law where I could hopefully serve in a really meaningful way. That sounds like just such a unique and interesting experience to have, regardless of whether you did end up going to law school afterwards. But clearly now we're here and we've been hearing about the Immigration Justice Center here at UW, which you are director of. Mm -hmm. um, and before we jump into the nitty gritty of immigration policy in the US, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the center and kind of your role there? Yeah, of course. So the University of Wisconsin Law School really works on this motto of law and action. And so a lot of students um, through clinical programming in law school during their second and third year of law school, it's a, law school is generally three years, they get to um, participate in, in a clinical program if they choose to do so. And under the clinical program, they get to practice law under the law license of their supervisor. So the Immigrant Justice Clinic started in 2012, really on a kind of a grassroots movement from the from law students who wanted to have this program in law school. So they applied for a grant along with the Community Immigration Law Center, actually a Baldwin, Wisconsin IDEA grant, and were able to open this clinic that is now um, hard money, but it was, it's been a long road of fundraising and making sure that we have enough resources and then being able to serve the students and the population that we need in a way that is um, beneficial and helpful to the community. Uh, Wisconsin does not have very many legal services, legal service providers for people who are facing removal from the United States. So deportation. And we, through the clinic, we serve people that are detained in the only immigrant detention center in Wisconsin right now in Dodge County Correctional Facility. 
So the students under my supervision, and then we have two other clinical instructors that allow us to provide learning opportunities to law students where they get to truly represent an individual who is generally seeking asylum. So they're seeking refuge in the United States and the students will go to court and represent the individual in court in a full-on immigration hearing. And hopefully if we're successful, we will, people are serving, we'll receive asylum and be able to remain in the United States and hopefully have safety. We don't always look at it as a win being that people we serve have relief, meaning they could stay in the United States, but we have a goal of ensuring that as many people as possible don't have to face the immigration system on their own. Our laws in the United States, if you're charged criminally, our government will provide an attorney for you if you can't afford one. But in immigration proceedings, that Sixth Amendment right to counsel does not lead into the immigration system because it's considered civil, even though the the results of an immigration hearing might be deportation and deportation. Our courts have found that it's not a punishment, even though in my perspective, punishment, meaning you could be separated from your family for the, your entire life. You may be, never be able to return to the United States for your entire life. The stakes are really high and the consequences are really dire. And so providing access to justice and um, ensuring some sort of due process is really kind of the, the driving force of the clinic. And so I get to work with these incredibly passionate, energetic, brilliant law students to bring this energy every year to, to serving the people of Wisconsin who may face the system otherwise alone. And you just returned from a trip to the border Was that part of your work with the center? Yeah, so most of the work that we do at the clinic is serving people um, in Wisconsin, families or individuals who are facing deportation. But our work goes beyond the borders of Wisconsin. Um, I think really ensuring and trying to illustrate and develop the Wisconsin idea as much as possible. So we also serve people through experiential learning trips for law students where we go to detention centers on the border, or even on the other side of the border. We've done that as well and gone to Tijuana, where um, people under the Trump administration were forced to remain in Mexico during the pendency of their asylum hearings. Over the the past few years, we've traveled to a place called Dilly, Texas, where there was a South Texas Family Residential Center. And I would take groups of students to serve women and children in detention there who are seeking asylum. This, a few weeks ago, I went with one of my colleagues and one of my former students to go to Fort Bliss, where there is um, a large child detention center there. Um, I can't speak a lot about the details of the work we did. I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, but a lot of the information is public. So there's certain things that I can talk about. But the goal of us was going two weeks ago to see if it would be an appropriate site for students to also go and serve because... I can tell you that the desires of the um, the law students at University of Wisconsin, they really want to serve in any way possible. And I think when you think of thousands of children who are seeking refuge in the United States in a detention center, the need is quite great. And it's in El Paso, far from Wisconsin, very much close to the border. We saw the wall between Mexico and the United States was a vision we saw every day. But yeah, we went down there to help provide legal services and to children that were in detention at the center. I'm curious, how does the work differ between when you take trips down to the Southern border? How is that 
day-to-day different than the work that you do here in Wisconsin? So it differs quite a bit. Most of the work that we do here in the center or at the Immigrant Justice Center here in Wisconsin, as well as on the border, it all generally relates to asylum or humanitarian relief for people who are facing deportation. When we go to the border, it's more limited services in terms of the detention center in Dilly, Texas with women and children, we will be preparing the women and children for something called their credible fear interview. And the credible fear interview is kind of like a mini asylum hearing where they will be interviewed by an immigration officer to determine whether they have a credible fear of returning to their home country. And if they can express that and meet that burden, then they'll have the opportunity to remain in the United States to seek asylum in front of an immigration judge. So Sometimes we'll meet people, we represent people that have gone through the Dilly Detention Center and then they end up in Wisconsin. And so the themes kind of follow throughout, but when we're on the border, it's often um, these emergent situations where these students will be working from honestly like 60 to 80 hours a week, just trying to find, to provide services and information to people who are where um, deportation is imminent, but the dangers they face are real. So it's a really intense, all the work that we do is quite intense. I'm always concerned about the well-being of my students, but I also know that the work that they do is some of the most powerful and influential work that they have done in their life thus far, really making their educational opportunity and their education for seeking a law degree quite meaningful. And they see the benefits of having the power and the benefits of having a law degree immediately. It's work that I wish wasn't necessary. I often say if my job was eliminated because there was no need for me, that would be something to celebrate. Not because we close our borders and we don't allow people to seek asylum, which we saw tenors of that and under the Trump administration, but because people either have a government attorney, something that our government already pays for and provides services to ensure that access to justice or there's less suffering in the world, or a more fair immigration asylum process in the United States. Absolutely, yeah. And speaking of immigration policy in the U.S., um, let's say that this was the first day of a class you might teach on immigration policy and legal process in the U.S. What would be that overview that you give students that kind of covers the main topics or the main issues, especially for people who maybe follow headlines, but don't really understand those key questions facing people both seeking to immigrate as well as just the U.S. legal system itself? Yeah, that's a really good question and a big question for a number of ways, because immigration system or the policy and the laws in the world of immigration, it's kind of, you know, it's very much in the headlines these days, and there's a lot of misinformation. And so whenever I am teaching immigration law from the beginning, or even just giving a presentation to the community, I often just start with the basics in terms of what do, who is allowed to enter the United States under our laws, who is, um, and who is not allowed to enter the United States under our laws. The most common question I get or critique I get from the general public is why don't people just get in line? And I think what is so important about that question is explaining that there are, there are no lines for most people. Um, the way that the laws create are created and were written by Congress, um, they people have to have a visa for a specific purpose to enter the United States. That being said, there is a line that people can get to into to seek 
um, humanitarian relief in the United States. And it's called asylum. And there's such negative information out there about the asylum process, even though our asylum laws stem from our country's failure and the world's failure to react to World War II, where we sent people back to their deaths in Nazi Germany. And we wrote our laws and entered into, into agreements with other countries to ensure we don't do that again. But it's been so muddled, especially over the past five years, in terms of how people can seek asylum. But in order for people to get into a certain line in terms of family-based immigration, so maybe your spouse can apply for you, um, you're married to a U.S. citizen. If you're married to a U.S. citizen, it's still a six to one year long process. But if you're married to a U.S. citizen, you may not be eligible to become a lawful permanent resident or U.S. citizen for a number of reasons. So it's kind of going back to giving people the information that they need to understand the basics of immigration law before we get into the deep, dark topics of, of policy and of exclusion and deportation. But people, I think in general, things could be very different in terms of our immigration system if people truly understood the basics of our law and what's permissible and impermissible. And I think that would also give a lot of people the opportunity to show empathy to families that are constantly separated by our immigration laws. What are some recent trends and why individuals and families seek asylum in the U.S.? And how might these trends align with changes in how the legal system addresses them? No, it's a really good question in terms of themes. A lot of the times I talk about like, why are people coming to the United States and seeking refuge? We talk about like these push factors, why people are pushed out of their home countries, why they're no longer safe to be there. And I think for a lot of us who live in a rather safe world, and the United States is clearly not safe for everybody, we have a lot of, of issues and people being over-policed and people not being safe because of their own political opinions or the color of their skin. But people that I meet who are seeking refuge in the United States, their stories are really breathtaking in terms of the true horrors that they've already faced or the fears that they have to live with on a daily basis because of their religion, nationality, race, political opinion, or even membership in a particular social group. Most of the people that we see at our clinic that we're representing who are seeking asylum, many of them are fleeing political persecution or violence from gangs or domestic violence in Central America. But we also represent people from Venezuela who are seeking political asylum, people from Cameroon who are, they're English speakers and they're persecuted by Francophones. But what the Francophone controlling government basically. And so there's a number of reasons, but a lot of times it's just a government unable or unwilling to control a certain group. A lot of the gangs in, in Central America, they act as de facto government and they control the area and persecute people because of their unwillingness to participate in their gang activity or even their inability to pay a multa fine on a monthly basis. But gang violence as well as domestic violence, when someone is persecuted by those groups, it has been recognized as a way for someone to qualify for asylum. But under the Trump administration, particularly with Jeff Sessions as the attorney general, there was a lot of attack on that. And he, um, under the powers of the attorney general, uh, acted in ways to help or attempt to eliminate those bases for asylum. 
Merrick Garland, our current attorney general, just reacted to that as well and rescinded some of the really negative policies that, in my opinion, the attorney general session put into place. So there's just a lot of confusion. But what we see is people fleeing because of really these push factors in their home countries. We do see, and I have seen a lot of people recently flee their home countries because of environmental reasons as well. And it's a developing area in the law because currently you cannot, you cannot receive asylum because your house is inhabitable or there was a hurricane that made your country, your, the area where you are, um, you're not safe to live in. That being said, do people still need protection? Yes. But will they qualify for asylum under our laws? No, currently. But there are something called temporary protected status that we're seeing was just announced for Venezuela because of political persecution. And that may be an area that continues to develop um, where we see locations where people are not safe because of environmental reasons. You mentioned families, children, people trying to leave domestic abuse, gang activity. But what about unaccompanied minors? Is there a way for them to legally seek asylum? There is not. Under the Trump administration, the policies that were in place, something called metering and something called the migrant protection protocols made it almost impossible for children who were traveling to seek refuge in the United States without a biological parent to seek to seek asylum in the United States. And so in a lot of ways, that's why we saw the numbers of unaccompanied minors increase so much over February, March, and April, because the Biden administration allowed unaccompanied minors to now seek asylum in the United States. And people say, some people were saying this, Biden encouraged it, but really what he, what the policy did, he wasn't encouraging it. He was just allowing our laws to work the way that they're supposed to by permitting unaccompanied minors to enter the United States to seek asylum. Now they're not just entering the United States and not being monitored, that's quite the opposite. They are being processed in the United States, reunited generally with a family member or close family friend. 80 to 90% of the children arriving at the southern border have someone in the United States who is ready and willing to care for them. It leaves about 10% in need of foster care and things like that. But many of the children will apply for asylum and many will also qualify for something called special immigrant juvenile status. And special immigrant juvenile status is a a process, a law that we have in the United States that allows a child who is abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both of their parents. And it's not in the best interest of that child to return to the home country. If they can establish those two things, the children, child might be be eligible to apply for their green card in the United States, which is the pathway to citizenship. And a lot of the children, um, many of them will qualify for something like that. But currently there is a process for children arriving on the southern border to seek asylum in the United States. Title 42, which is which has closed our southern border to asylum seekers, to all asylum seekers. There's a few exceptions, one of them being these unaccompanied minors who are arriving because this administration has recognized the incredible danger these children are in if they are not allowed to seek asylum in the United States. And what do you say to the people and politicians who say that people who flee to the border from Mexico and Central America are drug traffickers or criminals? And why do you think that that narrative has taken hold so successfully, especially in the past five years, and especially with economic research that shows that immigration helps the U.S. economy? 
what I say is I think people need to really look at the facts and look at the, the truth of the, the situation and look at the humanity of the situation. When you want to label people who are black and brown, who are seeking refuge in the United States as others, as criminals, as um, drug traffickers, it's easy to do. And if you want to gain political momentum by discriminating against people and not following our laws, that's something I think that is very much happening. But when we look at who's arriving at the southern border, many of them are families or children that are just seeking refuge, refuge that's permissible under our laws. Our country, especially under the Trump administration, did everything possible to deter people from seeking refuge, um, including separating children, ripping children from their parents' arms. We work with a lot of families and children that were affected by the zero tolerance policy on the southern border. I think as horrific as that zero tolerance policy was, I think it opened a lot of Americans' eyes to the true horrors that happen on the southern border by our Customs Border Protection and Immigration Customs Enforcement agents, as well as truly recognizing why what our government agencies are trying to do. They're trying to deter people from coming. They're not trying to allow them to to seek asylum under our laws as permissible, but we're trying to deter them. And we will separate families. We will abuse families and and children in order to, to get to that end. It's a really difficult situation and really horrific some of the rhetoric that has come out of politicians' mouths because so much of it is simply untrue. Most of the drug trafficking that happens occurs at a port of entries, our lawful port of entries through cars. And so what's interesting is the Biden administration in some of their proposals for the Citizenship Act of 2021 wanted to increase monitoring at the ports of entry, you know, increase intelligence there to combat drug trafficking, not necessarily combating individuals who are seeking asylum, but really looking at the core problem that's going on. So the more people that are speaking honestly about this, about the issue on the border and the humanity that's involved, I think the better it will be. But it's easy to be scared of others. And I think people have really been taking advantage of that for political progress on their own political needs or wants. Does meaningful change have to come from the federal level? Or is there something states can do where Wisconsin has done? One of the things I teach about in immigration law is federal preemption. You know, immigration law is federal. So there's, we're always generally going to be looking at the federal government and our laws there to see what rules and what the rules are, what the laws are. There's some things that states can do to make things better for our undocumented population. When we look at 11 million people, just about every state has a large population of undocumented people. Certain states may offer driver's licenses or IDs to people who are undocumented, which helps alleviate some of the the crimes or over-policing that happens to our undocumented community. Because you can't drive a car lawfully if you can't get a license. But if you were eligible to get a license in your state, you wouldn't be pulled over and given a ticket for driving without a license. So certain things like that. Um, Some states offer in-state tuition for higher education for people who are undocumented. These are both things that Wisconsin does not do. And we could do much better and hopefully will do in the near future. But generally, the Congress has to act in order to make any sort of meaningful change in immigration. That being said, what we've learned, especially over the past five years, and we saw it very much under the Trump administration, is the power of the executive to change policies through executive actions. 
to change our immigration policies and procedures. And what I've learned, and I think we've all witnessed, is it's pretty incredible, the power of the executive. And so without Congress acting, we may be going through kind of a ping pong game, depending on who the president is. We went from incredibly, incredibly restrictionist policies under the Trump administration, and now some more more humanitarian-based policies under the Biden administration. In particular, there are some things that are not protected and will change because of the president and something that we all really need to be aware of. I was going to ask your opinion on that as a follow-up and you kind of already hit that. So we're really on the same page, but (laughs) do you think that that ability for the executive to have so much say in what our immigration policy looks like is ultimately harmful to the people that the policies affect? That is a really good question. And I think the power of the presidency over the immigration system can have a true effect on our country. I've seen it most firsthand through asylum seekers, people seeking asylum and refuge in the United States, and also our community of people that have deferred action for childhood arrivals for DACA. We have had DACA now for nine years. It's a deferred action. It's a deferral of deportation. It is not a status. It is not a pathway to citizenship. It is basically a limbo for people you who have it. You can have DACA and you can work with permission. You can go to school. You can pay your taxes. You can um, have a social security number, but it's not permanent. And in particular, the Trump administration attempted to terminate DACA. They weren't ultimately unable to do so because the Supreme Court said they did it in an illegal manner. But that being said, we have some protections for DACA for the next three years because Biden, President Biden has promised to protect and hopefully increase benefits for people with DACA. But after that, we don't know what will happen. So we have about currently between eight 800,000 and 900,000 people living with DACA right now in the United States that will increase as um, people are now eligible to apply who were not um, eligible under the Trump administration. So that population is going to grow, but their future is at the power of the executive right now, unless Congress acts, unless the people act. If you were able to wave a magic wand and institute any major immigration policy reform, what would your main recommendations be at this point? Oh, such a tough question. Um, There's so many things that I would want to change and to encourage in order to make our country a more safe place and our world a more safe place for all. Biden's Citizenship Act of 2021 had a lot of really smart parts of it, a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people who truly are the fabric of this country in so many ways. I think that needs to happen. You know, I talked about before these lines that people can get in or lines that people aren't eligible to get into. Many of the 11 million people who are in the United States aren't eligible to get in the line, not because they've done something wrong or not because they have been arrested or convicted of some crime. It's mostly because they just don't fall within these very stringent lines that we require people to get into. But if we gave people the opportunity to become U.S. citizens through a process, I think we would be able to truly provide safety and sanctuary to many people, but also provide a safer country and build a country that is stronger and more beneficial for all all of the people that live here. I think that we need to immediately act to create a pathway to citizenship for people with DACA. That seems like a no, 
a no-brainer in a way. The entire public, the majority of the people in the United States believe that this is, there should be a pathway to citizenship for people with DACA. If we don't have this, people are going to continue to suffer unnecessarily. And so that needs to happen. Um, And then our asylum system needs to be rebuilt and fortified, including changing our immigration court system. It is a unfair system that plays with the future and the lives of real human beings. So there's a lot more that I could say and could change. And but I think those are kind of the the three kind of big areas that I would do immediately and then work through a lot of other things um, as we try to improve the system. I believe we've touched kind of on and off on Biden's immigration reform proposal in Congress. But what would your take on it be? And is there any chance it'll pass? You know, I want to be hopeful, but I think in order for something to pass like this, we need to have the energy from the people that we saw when child separation happened, um, the zero tolerance policy. People stood up all over the country, conservatives as well as liberals, because they saw the pain and the horror that was going on at the southern border. And I think if people started to recognize that the immigration laws in the United States um, separate families um, in a different way than we did um, intentionally on the southern border, but families are separated by immigration system every day. And I think if the general public stood up and recognized that our immigration system was separating fathers from their children, mothers from their children, sons are being deported, and you can't see them again because if some people, if they leave the United States, they can never come back. And if some people, it's a very, it's a punishing system. And I think without a lot more action from the public, nothing is going to happen. But I do believe that if people really stepped up, there could be movement towards a more humane and just immigration system. That makes a lot of sense. There's some congressional Democrats and immigration reform activists suggesting that a separate reconciliation bill is more likely to engage immigration reform right now. Could you explain why they think that's the case and maybe what your analysis of that approach is? You know, I think they're just looking for a way to get some sort of movement and like, how do we do this? Nothing is moving right now. So maybe we need to have a separate process for this. People, this is a tough time for almost every American, for almost every person around the world with the pandemic. And how do we bring immigration reform to the forefront. And that might be the only way that they they see that this is as a way for this to happen. But I'm not quite sure exactly why this is a preferred way. But I think people are just grasping for straws, some sort of way to bring this to the forefront, to get some traction so that we can, in these next three years, we can truly make um, a change. Because if things go back to a more restrictionist government, we're never going to make the changes that so many people believe are necessary. We're going to shift to a slightly more positive note. Can you talk about where we are with respect to DACA and how recent federal rulings might help DACA students at UW and people across the country? Yes. So one of Biden's first executive actions was to fortify DACA, so Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, children that came to the United States before their 16th birthday and before June 15th, 2007, they may be eligible to apply for for DACA, so Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This started in 2012, and we just had the ninth anniversary of this. As in the current state, DACA is a way for people to have their work permit and 
for two years and not have a fear of deportation for those two years, as long as there's nothing that happens that makes them what's called deportable. But it's not a pathway to citizenship. It is not a pathway to permanency in the United States in and of itself. People currently can apply, they can renew their DACA status and continue to do so every two years, or newly eligible people can now apply to receive DACA benefits. Under the Trump administration, that was always in flux, and new applicants were not eligible to apply. Only people with current DACA were eligible to renew. So now... um, in Wisconsin, it's estimated there are about 11,000 people newly eligible to become, to receive DAC benefits under um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. But there is a need for more, for more for people with DACA, because it really is creating a community that has to live in limbo at the, without knowing what their future will be, without any sort of law or permanent legislation to provide a pathway to citizenship. And could you talk to us about the UW Dreamers Center that's opening up in October and what will it do? Who will it help on campus? Yeah, so we're super thankful that we received a Baldwin Wisconsin Idea Grant to start the UW Center for Dreamers. Dreamers is an all-inclusive word. It doesn't exclude anybody who's undocumented or who has DACA who needs services in terms of um, legal services. Uh, mental health services, and career and educational counseling. What we've seen, especially on campus here in Wisconsin, is there's very few specific resources for for students that are undocumented or students that have DACA. And their situation is very unique, and it requires a lot of specific um, information and counseling. The goal of the center is to provide information and direct services to people all over Wisconsin. So it won't just be serving students at UW, we will serve students at UW, but we also hope to serve people throughout the state. So as you know, as far, far north as um, you know, Eagle River, Manaqua, and also like Brown County, Green Bay, Appleton, there's no specific resource in Wisconsin currently that provides um, specialized services for people with DACA. And over the past, under the Trump administration, we really saw a lot of a need for emergency information and trusted information. So we're hoping that with this grant, we will start to build this really important resource to people in Wisconsin that will grow throughout the years. We only have a grant for two years. So we often say that it's like a seed. We got seed money that will hopefully grow into a beautiful tree that will last forever if it's needed. I mean, ultimately, we really hope that everybody with DACA will just have a pathway to citizenship and we won't need a, a center for dreamers. Until we have that, we hope that the center will fill a need and be able to serve it in a really powerful way to our community members that have DACA and who are undocumented that have a desire to seek higher education. Feels very weird to almost wish you like a I hope we don't need you in two years. No, I feel that way about a lot of what I do. It's kind of a weird, like, I hope you're successful. I hope we never need you again, but it's nice that you'll be there for now. Yeah. Until, I mean, yeah, it'll be many years before there's a permanent solution, but until there, I think until we're there, we're really committed to ensuring that this service continues. I think Wisconsin needs it. And I think the people of Wisconsin believe in it. As we're kind of winding to a close here, um, I'd love to ask you, what haven't we talked about that we should have, or what could we talk about maybe next time we have you on the podcast? You know, I think you guys did ask 
a lot of really important questions and covered a lot of the work that we do, as well as a lot of the, the forward movement that's happening at the clinic and also at UW um, regarding immigration and law and policy. In terms of anything else that I think we should talk about, um, I think one thing that I always try to encourage people to know is something about something called universal representation. Universal representation is a movement in the United States that started by the Vera Institute to ensure that everybody in removal proceedings who's facing deportation will have an attorney by their side. We've seen, many of us have probably seen pictures of a child showing up in immigration court and facing an immigration judge in a deportation proceeding by themselves. In Dane County right now have um, universal representation due to funding from Dane County as well as Madison to fund three attorneys that are at the Community Immigration Law Center that we collaborate with quite a bit, actually three graduates from the Immigrant Justice Clinic. But I hope that Wisconsin can move towards that and growing the services, ensuring universal representation for everybody in Wisconsin so that no families are separated without a just and fair hearing. Um, under our laws. And so we try to provide that at the clinic, but we really are an educational clinical opportunity where we teach in slow motion to ensure that the students are truly learning what they they can. But, you know, ensuring that everybody has an attorney by their, their side if they are facing deportation, I think is incredibly important. And I think Wisconsin is should be the next state to ensure that we have this. So something I hope that people will be aware of and, and think about. Absolutely. Is that one of the things that makes you hopeful about immigration and immigration reform in the U.S.? I have to be hopeful, even though sometimes it's really hard to do. If I don't have hope, I don't know if I can keep keep trying. You know, I've lost a few cases. I've had a few clients deported over the past few years, and I've had clients who have been in detention and gotten COVID, even though that they they had family in the United States that were ready and willing to house them. We've seen some really horrific, inhumane actions by our government that have caused harm to people. That being said, I do think that if people knew the truth about our immigration system, we would we would have reform. And so I will hopefully keep educating and keep talking about just the truth. That's all I'm really trying to do to discuss what happens on the border, what our laws say ensure that our country knows what's going on and the people in our country knows what, what is going on so that we can all be comfortable with, with the process. But my clients give me hope. My students give me hope because they are resilient and they do believe in humanitarian relief and that the United States should be a leader in humanitarian relief. And I think that we one day will be again. And on that note, what can students and other people who are interested in helping do? Good question. So we always have volunteers at the Immigrant Justice Clinic. We often take volunteers with us when we go to the Dodge County Correctional Facility to do consultation and, and know your rights interviews with anybody who's detained there who would like to speak with an attorney. We often need people to translate. So if you speak another language, Spanish, Russian, Turkish, uh, Polish, Chinese, we often need people who speak languages other than English. And then we also have volunteer opportunities and internships at the community immigrant at the Immigrant Justice Clinic. The Community Immigration Law Center here in Madison also has a lot of opportunities for volunteers, but there are also really great classes to be had across UW that focuses 
focus on these issues in Chicano and Latino studies at the law school. I mean, it really goes far beyond the work that I do. And I'm in awe of so many of my colleagues in other disciplines at UW. So I would encourage people to kind of lean into that and do some searching to find classes that will allow them to be more informed on these very important topics. Internships, classes, and volunteer opportunities, quite a bit for students to choose from. Mm-hmm. Well, thank yeah, you. We're far from the Southern border, but there's still a lot going on here um, in terms of immigration. And I think we have a great community here to work with. And I think people generally enjoy their, their volunteer opportunities, even though they're challenging they can be life-changing. Yeah. Thank you so much for all those suggestions, all those recommendations. And while we're at it, thank you for being with us today, Professor Barbado. We really enjoyed having you and we would love to talk to you again in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for your interest and for having me. I really appreciate it. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.